I wanted to just briefly share with you. So I, I, I am your, uh, your elder candidate. Um, and I wanted to just... Uh, my, my story here and what I want to share with you just briefly is... I, it made me think back to probably, gosh, probably 20 years ago. When Julie and I were here at the church and... and newer believers, and we did the same thing back then where it went out to the congregation in terms of just, you know, who you, who you saw as might being a, somebody for, for a, the office of elder, the office of deacon, and then the elders would, would go to those men as we have done even this year uh, to talk to them and see what their interest is or what their desire is, and it's not that, that they're... Um, uh, weren't other men for us to talk to, but for one reason or another, it just wasn't the right time or, or they didn't yet uh, feel that they were ready to uh, commit to uh, eldership. But I remember having an elder come to me, some young ding-dong guy, you know, and, 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 and say, wanted you to know, though, that, that there are some, maybe it was just one, probably like my wife or my mom if she was here, <clears throat> that... Um, that see you um, in that role sometime in the future. And I was floored. I was, just, I was blown away. And I was like, what? what? Wow. <clears throat> so obviously I knew that that was not the time. And they knew that too. They weren't offering me to come on the board. But just to encourage me in that direction. And so to be able to stand before you now. And, and it just feels like in some sense some things have come full circle. And just for us even this last year to be able to be blessed to come back to Calvary Bible Church. Kind of like Todd in, in, in a way. Gone for a while but so pleased to be able to return. And, and I think there my desire towards being one of your elders is that I, I don't just have a, an interest in just pursuing the things that I was brought down here for. Be it the adult ministry work, or now the preaching and, and teaching of God's word work. But I desire the whole work. I, I desire everything pertaining to Calvary Bible Church. I don't just want to focus in, in these one or two areas, but, but we love and care deeply for this local body. And that is my desire, um, or if I were to uh, be one of your elders, would be to be able to have that kind of um, input and leadership for the whole of Calvary Bible Church and to continue to help usher in the kingdom of heaven, to promote the kingdom of heaven greatly, to exalt Christ, that our church would be absolutely a shining light for the gospel and especially, too, in our community. Uh, so the, these are my desires, and I would be very honored and very blessed um, if I were to be able to lead you all in that way as well. So with that, um, let me pray. Father in heaven, we, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you for this Christmas season, for the songs that we have sung to you, the words that we have already heard spoken from your word Remembering the Christmas story. Lord, it's now our desire to worship you in spirit and truth, in your word, through your word, through the proclamation of your word. And as we've prayed many times before, God, that, that you would help us to rightly understand your word. You would help me to correctly 
teach your word. And that, Father, ah, certainly it will not return void that the Holy Spirit inside of us will show us the proper application of that word for our lives, whether it be as individuals and, of course, in the context of this local body. We pray for this now, and we pray it all in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Growing up, Growing up, my parents instilled something in me that I just have never forgotten. And my kids would tell you that because, excuse me, because they have heard it as well from my lips. And, And that is this, this principle that when you do something, anything, whatever it is you set out to do, you don't just give 100%, right? You give 110%. You always work harder, you seek to go the extra mile, you, you try to do more than is expected of you. I was trying to just think of uh, uh, something to share with you, and, and, and here's something that I came up with. When, when um, up in Weaverville, I enjoyed uh, in the community uh, directing theater. It's just always something that's been a passion of mine, the arts, and, and is certainly performing. But then I kind of crossed over into the directing realm. And, and I was directing school plays at first, and then community theater. And one of the, one of the school plays that we did was, uh, was Peter Pan. And when you're directing a school play, there's not necessarily a lot expected of you always. You know, I, I kind of knew what I wanted to do. And, and, you know, we'd get all the students involved. And it was a great school. And... and um, and we thought, hmm, what am I going to do when Peter Pan flies? You know, and you, and you come up with all these things for a grade school to do. Oh, you know, we'll have him standing on some kind of platform and project some image behind him. Or, you know, or, you know he's laying down on, you know, th- trying to hide stuff. And, you know, I thought, yeah, okay, well, I'll come up with something like this. And, and I had a principal of the school that I, was, that I was helping out with. And he came to me and he said, so what's, why, why can't we have him fly? What's what's wrong with hiring one of these companies that does wires or whatever? Can we have them fly? I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, maybe I, I guess we could, but it probably I'm guessing would would cost a you know pretty penny kind of thing. And he said, well, let's look into it. I said, okay. And next thing you know, I, I start off with one of the <clears throat> top companies. It's this company called Fly by Foy, the Foy family. The Foy flam- family flew Mary Martin on Broadway back in whatever it was, the 60s. And I thought, surely there's no way. And next thing you know, they're in Weaverville setting up our rigging and we're flying Peter Pan. And Lily got to fly because she was windy and all the kids are flying and here we go. And, and, and I, I share this with you because it was a situation where you go, here's what's expected, you know, and oh yeah, we can do that, we can accomplish that. But then I had this principle that said, Let's go the extra mile. Let's excel still more. Why not? And it was grand and glorious, and it knocked people's socks off. You know, parents were coming. They couldn't believe they were seeing these kids flying across the stage and all of this. This is a, it's a case of excelling still more. And that is what we're going to talk about this week and next, excelling still more. Obviously, not in the realm of theater or theatrics, but excelling still more in a spiritual sense. And we will see what some of the payoffs and some of the blessings of that 
will be. Now, last week, we, we got to the end of chapter 3 where Paul makes a transition marked by a prayer that he prayed on behalf of the Thessalonians. His prayer was threefold in that Paul says, uh, first, he wanted to pray for his own fellowship with the Thessalonian brethren, his, his desire to once again see them face to face. And then secondly, he prayed um, that the people there in the church, that their, their faith would increase and abound, that they would increase and abound in their love for one another specifically and for all people. And then thirdly, Thirdly, he prayed that Jesus would establish the people's hearts without blame in holiness before God the Father and his son Jesus at Jesus' second coming. And again, this week and next, we'll see Paul make a kind of a final request, if you will, and an exhortation to these dear believers, followed by some specific examples. And as been the case previously, know that this is absolutely 100% applicable to us here at Calvary Bible today, as much as it was for the Thessalonian believers back then. And it's it's applicable for us as individuals. But again, I'm, I'm wanting us to just continue to think how this also applies to us as a church body. So please stand with me and we will read God's word together. This is 1 Thessalonians Beginning in chapter 4, and we're actually only going to read the first two verses. The first two verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul writes, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you, by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And this indeed is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, this morning we're, we're just going to stick with these first two verses. And talk about what it means to excel still more. And then we're going to consider um, an example, a specific example that that I believe just absolutely readily applies to us here at Calvary Bible Church so that you and I can excel still more and so that we as a church can excel still more in our Christian walks and how we please God. And the first thing we want to look at is this, Paul's request and his exhortation, which is, again, to excel still more. So let us just consider a few things about these first two verses here in chapter 4. Paul uh, saying, finally then, brethren, is him transitioning from one section to another. In this case, he's going from what we might say declaration to exhortation. Or as I, I mentioned last week, kind of from a narrative sense to an advice sense that we will see throughout the rest of the letter. He has primarily been sharing his thoughts about the Thessalonians and and he and Silas and Timothy's special relationship with them, and of course how much they all love each other. And and they they had just a special bond with the Thessalonians and the Thessalonians with them. He has also commended them for their faith, love, and hope. He has shared some of the afflictions and sufferings that they have all been through. He has reminded them what they were taught by Paul himself and the others when they were there and how then he sent Timothy 
back to see how they were doing and how he has, of course, prayed for them. Then completing this transition, Paul says, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. It could also read, we ask and urge you. And yet again, we see this Greek word that we've had come up now multiple times, parakaleo, here for exhort. And once again, it's that word that Jesus uses um, with the disciples of the Holy Spirit back in the upper room and and how he prays that um, the Holy Spirit will be sent once he's gone. But here we see this word to exhort, urge, encourage, and, and Paul is doing so, he says, in the Lord Jesus, meaning he is exhorting them by the very authority of Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who indeed is God. And of course, the natural question, what is Paul requesting and exhorting? What is he urging? What is he asking of them? And the answer comes at the end of the verse, that you excel still more. And this is in keeping with Paul's theme of increasing and abounding that we saw back in chapter 3, verse 12 last week. In fact, excel... Is the same Greek word that we saw last week for abound, which which just simply means in excess of, uh, to exceed in measure a a super abundance, more. The word more there, as in much more. In other words, the phrase can be translated: We ask and urge you to do this more and more. In addition, the words for request and exhort. Grammatically speaking, are present actives. And I tell you that because it also shows us that this is to be for now and to continue on. Continue on. This is not a one-time request and exhortation, but rather something that is to be understood as always and ongoing. In other words, there is never to be a time when we wouldn't be called to excel still more. And the next obvious question is... Excel still more in what? Well, we'll get to that in a second. But first, we have to just jog back here because we have this little statement that has fallen in between, in between these two statements. When Paul says in verse 1, that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk. Now, What this is about, it's really the foundation for the request and for the exhortation to excel still more. Without the building blocks of instruction as to how the Thessalonians ought to walk and please God, then meaning they were getting this from Paul and Silas and Timothy, there's no way they could be expected to excel still more. Now, I I was... uh, I was thinking about that. You know, I've mentioned here before, you know, some of the highlights, you know, of my life outside of my family and ministry are pickleball and fishing. I love the acting thing. And I was thinking about this, you know, if uh, pickleball, we had another great, great uh, round on, on Saturday morning. You got to come out and join us. But if somebody just put a pickleball paddle in my hand and showed me the court and they said, go excel still more. Be like, excel still more and what? I, I don't even know how to play. I don't understand, you know, if if, uh, if my dad, you know, way back when put that fly rod in my hand the first time and he said, go excel still more. That one I might have understood. I don't know. That one I just think it just would have been that. No, 
I wouldn't have known. Instruct me, please. How do I how do I have any context for excelling still more? And that would that would be the same here, except we have this instruction given to the Thessalonians and the the instruction moves beyond them simply understanding the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. For now, it's about their Christian walk. It's about their Christian life and how they are to please God. God. And how are they to please God? Well, certainly the instruction that Paul gave them would center around obedience, but it would also include teaching them and showing them how to have a a love for God and and to be able to worship God and to have a a love for others and and probably teaching them about spiritual disciplines, things like, like learning the word of God which certainly they would have understood in that Old Testament context and then the things that Paul was sharing from his own direct revelation from God. And they would learn about prayer and serving and and giving and evangelizing. Because you see, if these things aren't apparent or active in the Thessalonians' lives, then there's no way they could be expected to excel still more in any area. Now... Why is it, why is it, do you think, that Paul feels the need to request and exhort, urge and ask the Thessalonians to excel still more in their Christian walks and their pleasing of God? Think about that. Because, I mean, hadn't Paul already commended them for being solid believers, faithful, loving, having a a steadfast hope? Well, yes, he did. And hadn't they received the gospel in much tribulation with with joy? Hadn't they become imitators of Paul and Silas and Timothy? And yes, indeed, they had. And hadn't they also been already looking forward to Jesus' return? And and hadn't Timothy come back with this good report, this good news of, of just how committed they were in their faith and in their love and that they had this firm standing in the Lord? So you think, so what gives? Why would they need to excel still more? It sounds like they already are. I think Paul knew the dangers. Paul knew well the dangers that could confront them, especially where, say, persecution is involved, affliction, the suffering that they would be going through. Like the seed planted on the rocky soil with no firm root, going through trials and affliction and and suffering can easily cause the young plant to wither and fall away. Okay, but it doesn't seem like that's the case with the Thessalonians. They seem to be doing pretty well in this, in this area, according to that good report that came back from Timothy. Hmm, so let's think, might there be another reason? Hmm, how about this? How about what we might call spiritual apathy? Spiritual apathy. How about believers getting to a place in their walk where they just frankly feel like, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good, and I don't know if there's really anything else to uh, to do. I'm, I think I'm doing enough. Things are well. What more can we do, or or should we do? Oh, friends, can I just say this is a very dangerous place for any of us to be in, either as individuals or as a church body, to find oneself or to find a church in this area of spiritual apathy. Oh, not. Good. We could 
give a simpler word and just say laziness. Laziness, spiritual laziness. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4, the church at Ephesus was accused of what? Losing their first love, Jesus. Uh, I would suggest to you and pretty fairly certain that apathy had something to do with it. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1, Jesus tells the church at Sardis that they are dead and need to wake up and strengthen the things that remain. Or Jesus tells them he'll come like a thief. He'll come like a thief. Or how about to the church at Laodicea? He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's what he says to the church. You're just kind of this lukewarm. Sure sounds like apathy to me. Spiritual laziness. Friends, we are to have a lifelong commitment towards our walks. And, and towards pleasing God, which is to say our sanctification, right? Becoming more and more like Christ. And, and this should match God's commitment to continually sanctify us. From the time that we have believed until the time we die or He brings us home, He returns, whichever comes first, followed by our completed sanctification, which we understand in the Scripture as being glorification. But until that time, friends, by God's grace, we need to keep pressing on. We need to keep moving forward. We need to keep moving up. And we must excel still more. Now, nowhere is this, I think, better laid out than what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. Go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 3. Keep the, your Thessalonian bookmark there and, and we'll just take a... A quick backwards jaunt to Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Looking at verses 12 to 13, Paul writes this to the Philippian church. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained it. Briefly, the it is the resurrection from the dead, going back to verse 11, his own resurrection. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect. That's referring to his ultimate glorification, right? And this is what, um, uh, excuse me, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Now, the that is what Paul just said, the resurrection from the dead, which again is to say glorification. And this is what he was pressing on towards or looking forward to, always moving towards while in this life. This is also why Jesus saved Paul to make him more and more into the image, his own image, until Paul would be with Jesus in that future sense, completely sanctified, completely Glorified, perfected. Look back at verse 13. Paul continues on. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do... 
forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. End quote. This conformity to Christ and his glorification to come is what kept Paul's focus. It's what kept him from becoming apathetic or lazy, forgetting about any issues of the past. And golly, Paul had plenty, didn't he? He was a blasphemer, he, he self-attesting and, and a persecutor of the church. And this is what kept him reaching forward always looking ahead, desiring to excel still more. He sees the goal. He sees the prize there in front of him, knowing that this is God's upward call in him, in Christ Jesus, on him in Christ Jesus, excuse me. And we see the same principle, the same principle of pressing on and excelling still more in 1 Corinthians 9. Go ahead and turn there. Just back up a little bit more. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Looking at verses 23 to 27. Paul has been sharing how he has become a slave to all people, meaning the Jews, the Gentiles, the weak, etc. Becoming like them so that he might win more to Christ. And then he says this in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 9. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. So that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Okay, and then just let me interject. Now he, he is going to share what the proper attitude is or what drives him in order to accomplish these difficult things. Look at verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives a prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable, right? We understand that he's, he's um, contrasting uh, playing in, in like some games, like, like Olympic kind of games with, with, with um, um, things of a spiritual nature. He says in verse 26, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not just beating the air, but I discipline my body. I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Sure sounds like excelling still more to me. Excelling still more. Let's go ahead and go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And now verse 2, where Paul says, For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And Paul again is invoking the very authority of Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fact that whatever commands that, that he or Silas or Timothy had, had given to the Thessalonians, these were by the authority, not of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, but of Christ himself. And we can only imagine what all the commands and instructions were for how they were to walk and how they were to please God. Of course, Paul would be relying partly on the Old Testament. And we might imagine even the, the Ten Commandments or, or, or maybe nine for what he would share with them in Colossians 2.16 about the Sabbath day. And, and no one being anyone's judge in regard to the Sabbath day. But he would also share all that he knew from that direct revelation that God had given to him 
by the Lord Jesus, as according to Galatians chapter 1. And all of this to say, the Thessalonians then were to excel still more in all areas of their walk and of pleasing God. And through the commandments, they were taught all by the authority of Jesus. Now, originally when I was kind of crafting this, this, this message, I thought we would just go right in to verses 3 to 8. And that would be uh, an example of excelling still more in a very specific area. And then we would go to, to um, 9 to 12 and look at another, some specific examples. But uh, I just decided to change it up a bit this morning. And, and we are going to get to those examples next week. And we will look at verses 3 to 12 next week. But for the rest of our time this morning, I, I, it's been on my heart to, to just kind of hit another specific area of excelling still more that I just think is, is absolutely appropriate and, and I pray will be helpful and useful to you just kind of where we're at as a church right now. And it will also be appropriate because we will stay with the Apostle Paul. And I imagine that the truths that we will be challenged with from this next little section are ones that he also instructed the Thessalonian believers in. This will be a familiar section to most of you. Go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. And we will see now our call... To excel still more in the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit. As you're turning there, remember that the context here in this Galatians 5 passage is is Paul differentiating between being controlled by the flesh and being controlled by the Spirit. Capital H, capital S, Holy Spirit. Of course, the flesh is what we live in. This is our flesh, right? And guess what? There's a problem with our flesh. It is sin-cursed through and through. And we have to be very careful, friends, not to walk by our flesh, but rather to walk by the Spirit. In fact, if we go back to Galatians 5, if you just look back to verse 13, Paul says this, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And then if you skip down to verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. That's very interesting, huh? So if we're walking by the Spirit, we will not be walking by the flesh. It would just virtually be an impossibility. Verse 17, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you Please, meaning those things of the Spirit. And then he goes into some examples of of deeds of the flesh, which are pretty gnarly, until he finally gets to verse 22. And look at verse 22 of Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. 
Against such things there is no law. What Paul means there at the end is that as long as someone is a true believer, they are walking in the fruit of the Spirit. There's no law necessary to try and bring about some kind of righteous behavior, right? Because the righteous behavior will be evident because of the fruit of the Spirit that is in them and coming out of them. So just with the rest of our time, let's just consider this fruit. And what it means for us as individuals and also as a church that we would excel still more in these areas. Love. Love. Now, we've already talked a lot about love. We talked a lot about love next week. And guess what? We're going to talk about love more next week because that's what the text says. But, but, but for the fact that it's on this list, and it's really one, by the way, that, that is a, a, a binding attribute. It's why it's first. It binds all the other attributes together. It makes me think of like the, we used to see um, logging trucks, you know, up where we were at. And they, and they got the big logs and they got the big giant straps around them or, or even loads of lumber. And they got those big, thick, giant straps binding and holding all these, these things together. And that's what love does with the rest of the, this fruit. It binds and it holds it all together. Kind of like an umbrella, if you will, too, which all the others are, are kind of under. And again, we, we've talked a lot about love, but here's what I want us to, to just kind of emphasize here this week. Going back to the Thessalonians and Paul's exhortation to them, and of course, subsequently to us, to excel still more in our walks, in our obedience, and how we please God, this is only going to happen, friends, as far as you love God. It's... It would be impossible otherwise that you would love God and that you would continually cultivate that love for God. So how? How do we do this? How do we do this? I think first we have to we have to full well understand first John four nineteen. This is integral. We love because he what? First loved us. Amen. That is key. You know what? If you if you like, go ahead and turn to First John. Let's just have a just a little little First John refresher. First John chapter four. First John chapter four. What a tremendous book! First John and Second and Third John, of course, yeah, just tremendous. Uh, the whole of First John is really about the assurance of your salvation, but here in First John. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 8, John says, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Let me just put in some parentheses here to say that John then explains how this love affects people that would put their faith in God's Son, Jesus. Verse 9 then, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Meaning God's wrath against sin would be appeased by the death of His Son as a sacrifice in our place. This is where love starts, friends. This is where your love for God begins. Right here at the cross. It's the whole reason for God's love then being able to manifest in us. We can never, ever forget that we were once the objects of God's wrath. 
His holy and just wrath, we might add. But now, friends, thankfully, we are objects of His love. And that should change everything in us about how we see God, how we view God, what we think of God. Friends, God's love for you, resting solely on the finished work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on your behalf, is why His love will never change. Because of what Christ has done, it's finished. It is complete. It is accomplished. And that can never change. Not ever. And in order to come to faith in Christ as your Savior, this is exactly what you have to believe. That God loves you. Not based on on any work of yourself or of any merit that you think that you've kind of earned on your own, but only on the work and merit of Jesus. And this then is why we love God. It's the whole reason we're able to love God. Another way that we, we cultivate our love for God is to keep, this might sound strange, it's to keep our sin ever before us. That we would be constantly then reminded of God's love in light of our sin and the forgiveness that he offered us through his son. Friends, we need to be able to say with the Apostle Paul from 1 Timothy 1.15 when Paul said, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. We love that first part, right? We would all agree, but man, to get to that second part of whom I am the worst. Notice that Paul, by the way here, he doesn't say of whom I was the worst. Did you get that? No, it's present tense. He says of whom I am the worst. And of course, the, you know, referring back to when he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. But present tense, he still sees himself this way, which makes then God's love For him all the more grand and glorious and all the more reason for Paul and us to then in turn love God all the more day in and day out, day in and day out. I don't know about you, but I deal with my sin daily, hourly, sometimes minute to minute. Minute to minute. And and to, to be reminded that of God's forgiveness and God's love, even while in rebellion against him, will then just cause us to, again, love him all the more. We see another reason to love God. This is in Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. I'll, I'll, I'll read it for you. Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24 says, Thus says the Lord, Let, a not, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, And let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast of this. Here's the key. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. So in other words, friends, if we are always seeking to know and to understand the Lord, to know God, this will only help to increase our love for Him. Let us learn also from David about loving and even craving God. I, I love this about David. Just again, that, that, that 
heart's desire, that yearning for God. He says in Psalm 63, verse 1, Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Or how about Psalm 42, 1, when the psalmist says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. Somebody should write a song about that, huh? (laughs) Loved ones, if you are not loving or craving or thirsting or hungering for God, there is no way that you will ever be able to excel still more in any spiritual endeavor. This needs to be first and foremost. Secondly, joy. Joy. The Greek word here for joy in this text of uh, Galatians 5 is kara, which means gladness, great happiness, bliss. Some synonyms would be exaltation, exuberance, good cheer, and gladness of heart. And, And the difference between the joy of the world and the joy of, say, Christians, is that our joy as Christians, it's divinely motivated. And it is also divinely empowered. It is, it is joy that comes from God through the Holy Spirit in you. It is a joy that is absolutely dependent on God. It is a joy because of God. And you might want to consider here some ways then to cultivate that joy. For instance, here's just a a few quickies. Believing and trusting in God and not in the world will help to cultivate that joy. We see that Romans 15, 13. Confessing and repenting of sin because there's no way you can have the joy of the Lord if you are in sin. Psalm 32 verses 3 to 11. Give thanks to God. Give thanks in all circumstances and that will help with your joy, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. And friends, may I just say that we need to constantly have that eternal perspective. We need to always be looking forward, looking ahead towards heaven, towards being with Christ forever and ever. And that will increase our joy here in this life. Romans 5.2. Peace. Popular word at Christmas time. Peace and joy too and love. We'll talk about these also again tonight. Let me just offer you three aspects of peace. Here's how we should be concerned with peace. Number one, you need to be concerned with peace with God, between you and God. Right? We see this in Colossians 1, 21 to 22, and Paul says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, and you're sitting there thinking, oh man, those are some bad people. That's us! That was us. He's talking about us. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you, me, right? Present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's what we learned about from last week in part of Paul's prayer to the Thessalonians, right? Secondly, there's also peace within ourselves. We could even call this personal peace, if you will. In other words, now that you have peace With God, does that mean that you always have the peace of God? In other words, does it mean that peace then reigns in your life day in and day out? Or are there things that you allow to disturb that peace? Disturb your peace. Colossians 3 and verse 15 says, 
Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And then thirdly, there's peace with others. Peace with others. We understand that from Romans 14, 9. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. And Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. We learned about those two things in Thessalonians last week as well, right? That yes, we should be striving for peace with one another. And then, of course, even peace with those outside the church. What aspect of peace might you need more of today? And if it's that peace with God, then I pray that today is that day of salvation for you. That you would repent of your sins and put your faith and your hope and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross to bring about your salvation, to offer you forgiveness of sins and that guarantee of eternal life based on, again, his resurrection from the dead three days later. Do you need that peace with God? Do you need peace in your own heart? Do you need maybe peace with others? Patience. Oh, now it's starting to get rough, isn't it? Yeah. Patience, literally long suffering. And we might understand patience in that realm of long suffering. We've got some great examples. How about Joseph? As somebody who long suffered, had to have patience or Job We could also consider patience in the realm of provocation, being provoked, being provoked or allowing that temptation of being provoked to to eclipse our patience. First Corinthians 13, five tells us that love does not provoke. And then also maybe patience in the sense of enduring or persevering, which is really more about patience in circumstance. For instance, Jesus going to the cross is a tremendous example. Or Romans 15, 5, which speaks of the God who gives perseverance and encouragement. So we see that 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 patience would come from even God, of course. And then maybe patience in waiting and waiting on the Lord. As the psalmist says in Psalm 40, Verses 1 to 2, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon the rock, making my footsteps firm. How about patience in the sense of forbearance, uh, tolerance? We could go to Ephesians 4, 2, where Paul says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a worthy manner of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Which of these aspects of patience do you maybe struggle with most how about kindness kindness the greek word for kindness is is christotes and it is defined as being useful or profitable and it's really descriptive of one's disposition to be kind to have a kind disposition Uh, Jerry Bridges in his book, The Fruitful Life, says this, quote, kindness is a sincere desire for the happiness of others. It is the inner disposition created by the Holy Spirit that causes us to be sensitive to the needs of others, whether physical, emotional, or spiritual, end quote. 
I think uh, it goes without saying that we typically love three people the most, right? Me, myself, and I. Kindness is getting out of ourselves so that we are kind to others, and dare I might say even kinder to others more than we are kind to ourselves. We don't have a problem being kind to ourselves, though, usually, do we? To be kind is to be others-centered. Kindness can also be as, it can be as kind, it can be as simple as a smile. It can be a, in, just an encouraging word. It can be a thoughtful note. It can be a, a helpful hand. Often kindness is not something that requires a lot of extra time or resources. So let me ask you, what is your default setting? Is your default setting one of kindness? And if not, what can you do to change that? Next, we have goodness, a sister to kindness. Whereas kindness is often about that person's disposition, uh, it could be said that goodness is the outworking of kindness. It is, it is more on the proactive side. Again, I quote uh, um, Jerry Bridges when he says, goodness is the activity calculated to advance the happiness that is in being kind to others. Goodness is kindness in action, words and deeds, end quote. Goodness is more about deliberately doing, right? That will often require a little bit more of us, whether that be time or attention, maybe resources, even funds. These kinds of things to accomplish the good that we are wanting to do or trying to do. Acts 10.38 has Peter saying of Jesus, he went around, or excuse me, he went about doing good. Showing goodness in action. So just, I encourage you, think of, think of the realms in which you live and, and, and ask yourself if you do good to people. Do you have that kind disposition? And then is that kindness then come outward in the sense of goodness, whether it be at home or maybe on your job or at work, school, Maybe just out and about running errands. How about this? When you don't feel like it, you don't feel like being kind. You don't feel like doing good things. And it's going to take a little extra time. And I just don't have time right now. And I'm busy, busy, busy. Or how about this? Doing good and being kind when you think somebody doesn't deserve it. Ouch. Yeah, I'm feeling it too, gang. (laughs) Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Now, biblically defined, it literally means to win over or persuade. Here, as the fruit of the Spirit, it also means good faith and sincerity. And the way, then, that we understand faithfulness is the way that God is faithful. In other words, your faithfulness should be a reflection of God's faithfulness. And especially to you, right? And I'm, again, just going to allow one more time Jerry Bridges to help with this biblical concept of faithfulness. And he says this, quote, The faithful person is one who is dependable, trustworthy, and loyal, who can be depended upon in all of his relationships, and who is absolutely honest and ethical in all of his affairs, end quote. In what ways are you faithful, or not, to God? In what ways are you faithful or not to others? Gentleness. Gentleness. Biblically speaking, the Greek word for gentleness here is prautes, which means meekness. But let us not confuse this in the area of weak. 
it is anything but weak. Rather, it is an inwrought grace of the soul, a condition of mind and heart which demonstrates gentleness, not in weakness, but rather in power. It is a balance born in strength of character. Speaking of the power of gentleness, consider what Proverbs 25, 15 says. A gentle tongue can do what? Break a bone. Isn't that interesting? Some other examples would be Proverbs 15, 1. A gentle answer does what? Turns away wrath. But a harsh word, a non-gentle word, stirs it up. Stirs up the anger. Galatians 6 and verse 1. In dealing with a sinning brother or sister, Paul writes, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of heavy handedness and sock it to him. Oh, sorry. No, wrong Bible. Wrong Bible. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness. James 3, verse 17, James writes, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. Do you get that? Gentleness is heavenly wisdom. Heavenly wisdom. Philippians 4, and verse 5, Paul tells us, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near So do you have the gentle spirit that the Lord has? What situations or or people in your life maybe need a a bit more of a gentler touch right now? Hmm. Lastly, self-control. Self-control. In the New Testament, there's one primary Greek word that gets translated as self-control, enkrotee, which is about being temperate and moderate in your desires and appetites. Some Greek scholars would say that the word also speaks to the inner strength that enables one to have self-control. And there are other biblical words that are, that are cousins, we might say, with self-control, such as to be sober or sensible, to have sound judgment, self-restraint. And if we were to consider all of these, then kind of a, as, as a whole, what we see is that they complement each other because to be sensible or to have sound judgment then leads to that inner strength of being able to demonstrate self control and so again i just would have us ask our ourselves look inside our own hearts but what are some of the areas that we need to exhibit self-control in so as to honor the lord well how about honoring the lord by controlling your body Self-control over your body. Sometimes this amounts to what we put in our bodies or, or how we use our bodies. And, and even in the area of purity or lack thereof, which we're going to get to next week. How about honoring God by controlling your thoughts? Are you indeed taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ? As it says in 2 Corinthians 10.5. How about honoring God by controlling your emotions? Things like anger and jealousy 
and bitterness. And then how about honoring God by controlling things like our speech? And how about honoring God by controlling, of course, your actions? So friends, this morning I encourage you, I encourage you to ask again how you might as an individual excel still more or you even as a, as a family excel still more or we certainly as a church, how can we excel still more in our, our walks with the Lord and, and in, in our desire to please God? And, and then more specifically, how can we excel still more in this area of the fruit of the Spirit and exhibiting that in our lives? Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Reconciler. And Lord, I just pray certainly for anyone here this morning that needs to know Christ as their Savior, that they would repent and believe even right now in the quietness of their own hearts. And Father, I pray for, for the rest of us, Lord, that we would just have some prayerful consideration with you as to how it is we might need to excel still more as individuals, as a church. And Lord, just that you'll give us good wisdom, good direction there, and, and that we would consider and meditate this week even on the fruit of the Spirit and having love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, all to your glory, honor, and praise. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.